Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damien Garde. It's Thursday, October 6th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. It was a big week for paleogenomics and something called click chemistry, as the latest Nobel laureates got their phone calls from Stockholm. STAT's Megan Moltini joins us to explain their award-winning work. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including the state of biotech deal-making and the evolution of Amelix Pharmaceuticals. But first, a word from our sponsor. The rapid development of COVID-19 vaccines has pushed mRNA forward in the fight against cancer and complex diseases. Scott Ripley, General Manager for Nucleic Acid Therapeutics at Cytiva, is here to tell us more. mRNA is joining other scientific advances like CRISPR, immuno-oncology, and intracellular antibodies to drive new treatments and transform patient care. With mRNA clinically validated, therapies are accelerating through to approval. Biopharma is getting ready for an explosion in manufacturing demand at all scales. And at Cytiva, we're thrilled to help them along on that journey. You can learn more at cytiva.com forward slash advanced dash therapeutics. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash advanced dash therapeutics. So Damien, let's kick it off with you. Um, Tell us about what's happening with Pfizer um, and their role in biotech M&A. You wrote a little bit this morning about what kind of presence they have in the the larger, you know, biopharma market these days. I think Pfizer is biotech M&A, right, Damien? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's what stood out to me looking at an analysis from our friends at Evaluate Vantage, who were looking at basically just who bought what in the drug industry, both in the, the third quarter that just ended and, and the year as a whole. And they pointed out that one third of the dollars spent in that world had been spent by Pfizer, a company that, as we know, is making an incredible amount of money off of its COVID-19 vaccine and whose management said, we will use this to invest in our pipeline. And, and they've very much kept that promise, spending billions of dollars this year alone. But if you remove Pfizer and, and its COVID largesse from this picture, it's looking like a pretty dismal year for money changing hands in the drug industry, which is alarming to, I would imagine, the investors who looked at the ongoing downturn for valuations for biotech companies and saw an upside, which is that now that they're so cheap, pharma companies will feel that they have no choice but to purchase them. That hasn't really come true. And to the extent that it has, and we've talked about this recently on the podcast, it's been in some deals that can't really be making anyone all that happy. What are, what are clearly like marriages of convenience of small companies who value, whose valuations are so low that they've just had to accept a buyout that is uh, at a lower dollar price than they would have traded for even 12 months ago. Yeah, and it's, I think the uh, the numbers this year in M and A. What's interesting, and maybe is 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 the deal that has not happened, and we've talked about them this past. You know, the rumored. Uh, deal that Merck was going to buy CGen uh, for like kind of like $40 billion-ish. And, you know, obviously, uh, 
you know, that deal not happening uh, has obviously swung sentiment in M&A, like, you know, much towards the, the bearish side, right? I mean, I think the numbers that that were put together by uh, Evaluate were about $53 billion in deals uh, in so far through the first three quarters. And so obviously, if you tacked a $40 plus billion deal on top of that, then maybe things wouldn't look so bad. This all reminds me, I recently sat down with the head of Leaps by Bayer, uh, Jürgen Eckhart, who is, you know, Bayer, Leaps by Bayer is their venture capital arm. And their whole mission is to kind of like scout out companies to invest in at the early stages and hopefully find, you know, s- small biotechs that they can partner with one day or acquire one day. And, you know, Leaps by Bayer is about six years old. So they're kind of like first cohort of biotech investments is in theory should be you know, maturing. And I kind of posed the question to him. So do you think that, you know, we will see an increase in M&A from Bayer um, based on, you know, some of these early biotechs you invested in kind of being ready to harvest? And he brought up a really interesting point. He said not necessarily. One of the concerns that he expressed was that, you know, the, the cost of bringing in that operating um, expense from these these small biotechs that are doing a whole lot of R&D at a time when like Bayer, for example, is going to be, you know, looking at patent exclusivity going away for um, ILEA and Zarelto, you know, some of its, its high money makers. And the question of like kind of bringing in a bunch of new um, expenses beyond just like the initial M&A, you know, the acquisition price um, is, you could tell, was really on on their minds. So on a related note, as you noted, Damien, uh, you know, the Pfizer deal with Global Blood, uh, that actually closed this week and, and it, it closed relatively quickly, as did its uh, its planned acquisition of Biohaven. Both those deals closed relatively fast and without any uh, I don't know, maybe hassles is not the right word, but without any uh, objections from the Federal Trade Commission, you know, which had been uh, that's been a kind of a thorn in the side of M&A and or a worry that a sort of an activist FTC was going to meddle and get in the way of uh, biotech pharma M&A. And it seems like right now, at least or at least maybe for these smaller type deals uh, that um, regulators in D.C. are aren't uh, objecting to these kinds of deals. Yeah, you have to wonder, I mean, like outside of the like Illumina's type deals, if the concern about the FTC was kind of I don't know, I'm, I'm skeptical. Was it kind of a convenient excuse for why? Big Pharma wasn't doing more M&A, and obviously now we're seeing that not really, that excuse not really, you know, being fully fleshed out. Or, like, was there actually a very big concern? It kind of felt like a lot of bluster that has never really materialized in the last year or two, except for, like, this one, you know, very unique example with Illumina and Grail. (laughs) Yeah, it does seem like sort of the inherent conservatism of big business taking effect because in fairness you know the the new administration of the FTC had been very vocal about wanting to take a more activist approach to potential potentially anti-competitive mergers and had name checked the drug industry quite a few times so you can see why people might be a little concerned i guess what we're finding out in practice is that 
pharma's worst fear, which is that they would take a really sweeping approach to that and say, if one company works in cancer, then they cannot buy another company that works in cancer. That doesn't seem to be the case. It seems like if and when we see an FTC challenge for one of these mergers, it's probably going to be between actual competitors rather than just ostensible competitors. And so, I mean, I guess that's, it's good news for um, major drug organizations and maybe more so for the smaller ones that seek to be um, acquired by them. But then to your point, you know, all the numbers that we've recited just now, it's not like this apparently friendlier FTC is leading to this like massive boom in deal making. All right, so let's end this relatively brief chatty, Kathy, with uh, maybe a shout out to the the most recent uh, biotech company that has graduated into the uh, into the elite class of companies with U.S. <laughs> drug approvals. It's a a high honor, and uh, Amelix Pharmaceuticals uh, on Friday, so like right after we uh, recorded last week's episode, uh, secured U.S. approval for their drug to treat ALS. And Adam, to your point, it has. What I am, no offense, uh, Justin and Josh, um, I'm not in love with the name of this drug. It has one of the <laughs> the more unique drug names. Relivrio? You don't like that? Relivrio? R-E-L-Y-V-R-I-O? Or Relivrio. I mean, you know, I've seen, I guess I've, I've heard worse. I don't know. Yeah, I have long since accepted that drug names exist on a plane of semiotics that I don't understand and cannot understand and the people who name them apparently are well compensated for doing so, and, and the world keeps turning regardless. But anyway, the the drug, whatever it's called, um, you know, we've, we've spoken about it before because I think a lot of the, the drama around this was the prelude to the FDA approval after the dramatic public hearing um, in which many promises were made. Uh, at the actual approval of the drug, which happened last week, seemed like a foregone conclusion, which it turned out to be. What's going to be interesting looking forward is how Amelix, which is not really like other biotech companies, it was founded to develop this drug. It has worked hand in hand with patient groups and patients themselves um, for the entirety of its existence. It is publicly traded, but again, it, its focus is just this drug and, and, and ALS patients particularly. It'll be interesting to see how they evolve as they go from the sort of hopes and dreams stage of being a biotech company to the profits and losses stage of being a biotech company. They set a price for this drug of about $158,000 per year. Not everyone was excited about that number. It is slightly cheaper than the last medicine approved by uh, for ALS, but slightly being the operative word there. And now as they roll it out, I think they promise in the next six weeks, we will see how this company makes the very difficult, historically very difficult transition from pre-commercial biotech to commercial biotech and setting expectations for investors and meeting demand and dealing with suppliers and pharmacy benefits managers and all of the sort of unsexy stuff about the drug industry that, that we don't talk about as much. So it's it's an interesting graduation. Yeah. To your point, Damien, I mean, this the team at Amelix, it looks a lot different from your kind of traditional biotech getting their first you know, drug approval and, and commercial sales launch started, um, you know, for their first, what, like two, three rounds of funding, like there really weren't any like big VCs that were involved in Amelix. Their board is, you know, a lot different than other boards. You know, we're, we, you don't have that big VC presence. Um, Josh and Justin, both on the board, obviously first time CEOs. Um, you have a couple of board members that only joined just in the last year. So this is a real, this is a real test for them.
It's that time of year in which scientists all over the world set alarms for ungodly hours on the off chance that they get a call from the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. The 2022 Nobel Prizes for Medicine and Chemistry honored a scientist who figured out how to sequence the Neanderthal genome and the researchers behind a new way to snap molecules together. Stat science writer Megan Moteni braved her ungodly alarms this week to cover it, and she joins us now. Megan, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, great to be here. Let's start with what they're calling paleogenomics. So tell us about the new Nobel laureate Svante Pabo and his work. Absolutely. So Pabo is widely seen as the pioneer behind developing new techniques for working with really, really old DNA. So when you're pulling genetic material from 40,000 year old bones, you know, that DNA is often really heavily degraded. It's, you know, fragmented in little pieces and mixed in there is often DNA of microorganisms. And so he did a lot of work to figure out how to do really clean, sterile techniques and better extraction methods to actually be able to sequence DNA in these really old bones, which was something that was widely believed to be impossible until his group did it in kind of the mid 2000s. I mean, what's the, you know, what, what's the importance of that in terms of sort of modern medicine or modern genomics? What he found by sequencing kind of these ancient relatives, so he was the, his group was the first to sequence the Neanderthal and this other um, previously unknown hominin species called uh, Denisova. And what they, what he actually saw was that there's this, you know, there was interbreeding between those groups and what are now, you know, kind of modern humans. And so what his work really uncovered was the fact that humans, you know, human, you and I and, and all the people around us, we've actually have a little bit of Neanderthal or a little bit of D Denisova DNA in our genomes. And so what, why that is important is, you know, understanding how those little bits of DNA impact our physiology and how we came to be kind of the, the modern, you know, human machines that we are today. A lot of some of the really ancient genes that we inherited um, can actually have actually been linked to our immune responses, and you know that's kind of, that that makes sense. The you know immune our immune systems evolved over millions of years, and so one thing that's been really interesting is to see how those genes you know that were inherited from this really ancient time are you know rea uh, responding and reacting to our modern environments. So some of these genes have actually been linked to allergies because you know the environment that we're surrounded in today is really different from what, uh, you know, Neanderthals would have been encountering. We've, Pabo's group also showed pretty recently in a paper in 2020 that there's a kind of cluster of genes that is, if you have it, and it's descended, um, you know, from our Neanderthal heritage, but if you have that, it's the, it, it kind of confers the highest genetic risk for a severe outcome of COVID-19 if you catch the SARS-2 um, coronavirus. So, so there, there are, you know, I would not say that there are like a ton of direct, you can't point to it and say, okay, we have this drug because we know this thing about Neanderthal DNA, but it really did kind of open the door to this, you know, entire field of, um, you know, paleogenomics and looking at our, our early human evolutionary history and how those, there, you still see footprints of that or fingerprints of that, you know, in our genomes today. And so I think we'll, we'll see the impact, you know, in the future. 
So last week, Megan, you wrote a story delving into the curious world of Nobel prognostication, and you placed your personal bet on Carolyn Bertozzi of Stanford University, who founded the field of bioorthogonal chemistry. I was curious, was that a literal bet? And how much money did you make when she ended up sharing <laughs> the prize this week? Uh it was not a literal bet. Uh, if you've if you found the the Nobel betting pool, so let me, let me know. Um, no, that was that was purely yeah, just personal pride, <laughs> <laughs> missed opportunity. Well, kudos to you. And and now next year you have to get more than one right. So um, you know, pressure's on. Is that on. how this works? I'm pretty sure that by that like by getting it right, I just don't have to write predictions anymore. <laughs> oh, well, you can you can you can take that up with the bosses. Um, but let, yeah. <laughs> let's get to let's get to what uh, Carolyn Bertozzi uh, and her co-winners of the Nobel for Chemistry actually did. Tell us a little bit about uh, what click or bioorthogonal chemistry actually is. You know, like it the name sounds, it's kind of all about clicking or snapping molecules together. So. Imagine you could attach small chemical buckles to different types of molecular building blocks and use those to link them together. So you can create molecules of, you know, greater and greater complexity. That's, that's kind of the basic idea, um, that chemist Barry Sharpless, um, at the Scripps Institute had about 20 years ago. And then he and, um, Morton Meldahl, who is um, a Danish scientist, they kind of independently found the first perfect candidates um, to, to do this. And they involved um, using a little bit of copper to make this reaction work. And it really enabled this kind of ability to um, put pieces together that you never, never had been done before. And so it really like revolutionized all sorts of things, you know, most relevant to us kind of in the pharmaceutical industry. It has applications in building drugs. It has applications in DNA sequencing. And what Bertozzi worked out is a metal-free alternative um, chemistry because the, the copper, you know, is actually toxic in living organisms. And so by figuring out how to do that, she essentially created this whole new set of tools for understanding how cells interact with each other, um, for how molecules like move around cells. And, you know, so it allowed the ability to do chemistry inside of, you know, animals and including human patients. And so one application has been, you know, the ability to actually track drugs and make sure they go to the right place and, and you know, don't go wind up in the wrong tissues and, and cause toxic um, off-target effects. So, you know, her work has been really, really important in the development of new drugs and studying how diseases progress um, and all of that. So the click chemistry stuff is cool, but what's even cooler is what we learned some interesting personal things about Carolyn Bertozzi, you know, in the aftermath of her Nobel winning uh, the announcement uh, that, she, you know, she was in a band in Harvard with Tom Morello, the former guitarist for Rage Against the Machine, which I, I didn't know that. And that that impressed me, actually, maybe more than the science did. Clearly is a <laughs> is a multifaceted woman. <laughs> Yeah, I think, I, I mean, a lot of people think of scientists as, you know, only doing one thing, but a lot of them have, you know, have hobbies that they also excel at. So I didn't know that about her. That's that's pretty fun. She's also a big basketball fan, apparently, Damien. I don't know if you knew that. I did. Adam. <laughs> I did. Wow. 
Feuerstein. My phone rang during the recording of the podcast. It's like a cardinal sin. Yeah, that's not good. And it's actually a spam call from Vancouver, Washington. So. <laughs> Sorry about that, folks. Uh, as I was saying, Damien, uh, yeah, Carolyn is also a big basketball fan, uh, although she's a Celtics fan, which I know you're not. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> sorry, I got pulled out of the zone. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't want to, you know, besmirch uh, anything about any of these winners in, in what is their big week on a podcast that they will undoubtedly listen to. So, um, <laughs> Well, I mean, since they're they're listening to it, um, and to give to give further credence to you know making your prediction, um, there was a lot of chatter that Catalin Carrico and uh, Drew Weissman might get the Nobel Prize um, for their their work um, behind uh, you know messenger RNA vaccines, and there were people who were definitely disappointed that that didn't happen this year. What do we know about kind of the behind the scenes? you know, process of making the selection for Nobel Prizes. Yeah, so, you know, the way this works is that the Nobel committees put out a call um, pretty early on, like I think it's about a, a, a year or even more than a year before the, you know, prize itself. And they ask um, people who are, you know, leaders in the field, um, former Nobel laureates, medical school deans, if it's the medicine prize, you know, other heads of national academies kind of for the other um, fields, you know, to put forward, an, you know, a nomination. Uh, I believe they can nominate up to three individuals. And then, you know, that group meets, um, you know, over the course of that year, that committee, you know, they read everything that these scientists have ever published. They read everything that's been written about, um, you know, those publications, those contributions, and then they get together and discuss and vote. And, you know, these deliberations are, are highly guarded secrets. It's, you know, they hold them under seal for 50 years. So we won't know, um, <laughs> you know, until 2073, uh, <laughs> like what exactly the mRNA discussion was like this year. I mean, I think it's an interesting one in particular because it could reasonably go for medicine or for chemistry. And, you know, the people I talk to who pay attention to this stuff say that it absolutely will win a Nobel at some point. Um, the question is, is, is just a matter of, of when. And so, you know, it may really come down to what are the other candidates who, you know, they're, you know, in the running against. And there's always the kind of consideration in the back of scientists' minds that you can only win a Nobel if if you're alive. And so the kind of some of the older contributions, you know, as scientists get, you know, get older and older, those might rise to the top of the pile since, you know, they may not be around the next year um, to be considered. So... I, I think I think we'll see an mRNA Nobel um, certainly sometime. I mean, my guess would be in the next decade, but certainly, certainly at some point. That's a pretty wishy-washy prediction. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the next decade. Come on now. To me, on another note, are we all planning to meet back here in 2073? Oh, yeah. Great. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's going to be, uh, I don't know what episode or what season of the Read Out Loud podcast that will be, but yeah, we'll we'll be here. Yeah, definitely. 
So, Megan, as you've written, the latest awards come amid increasingly pointed criticism of basically the Nobel Prizes as a concept that by singling out individual scientists, they arguably distort the collaborative nature of research. And the prizes have historically overlooked important contributors to research, especially women and people of color. Is there evidence that those criticisms are getting through to the powers that be in Stockholm? Or conversely, is there a future in which because of this stuff, these prizes don't carry the same weight culturally as they as they now do. I'm not sure I can answer, you know, the the first question. I think certainly on the the second one, we are seeing, you know, a cultural shift. I think in you know it, the Nobels, like a lot of of our other you know institutions that have long you know historically been male and white, are are undergoing you know a bit of a if not a reckoning, at least um, sort of a, a rethinking of the place that um, those institutions hold and the power that they have kind of over um, the cultural conversation. So, I, you know, the sense I get is that, you know, certainly among um, younger scientists, there is a, an increasing feeling that you know why do we why do we care about this thing that that glorifies you know the individuals when science is so clearly a team sport you know and especially you know something like you know paleogenomics here you know for for example you know the teams that built these neanderthal genomes are just huge we're talking dozens and dozens and dozens of scientists um you know when someone like pabo has been recognized because I think without him and his decision, you know, back in the nineties to, to, to sequence a bit of, of a mummy, like we wouldn't have even, it would have taken, we, the argument is that like without him, would we, would we have waited decades to try to, you know, sequence these really, really old bones? Like, I I don't think we can know the answer to that. Um, but I do think that certainly the younger generations of scientists are increasingly, you know, not holding up the Nobel as, you know, the kind of shining star that it that it has been for previous generations of scientists. And I think the institution itself will probably take longer to catch up to that. I mean, I, I, you know, the criticism is that these institutions pick overwhelmingly pick people who look like them and, you know, picking an older, uh, you know, white Swede, I don't think does anything <laughs> to dispel that idea. Um, which isn't to say he's, you know, not deserving, not to pick on on him in particular, but but I think it is, you know, it's it's hard to overlook the facts. Megan, great uh, Nobel coverage this year. And we should also note that uh Brittany Trang, our colleague, also contributed. She wrote the story about Carolyn Bertosi and the click chemistry Nobel. Uh and uh we look forward to having you next year to talk about Nobels once again. Thanks for having me, y'all. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke, and our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you think Damien will win a Nobel Prize next year. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. We'll see you next week. 